Hello. Thanks for joining us in our study of Jeremiah. We're excited that you have chosen to view this, and we hope that your studies have been going well. We miss everybody. We're really looking forward to being back together in person. Uh, but until then, we hope that these video studies are, are helping you while you're at home, helping to provide some information and some thoughts uh, to guide you as you study the scriptures. We're going to be looking tonight at Jeremiah chapters 14 through 17. Uh, we've been putting these videos out each week, uh, myself and Matt Dow. And uh, if you've missed any, you can always go back and you can find them on the website, godsredeemed.org. Now on the left-hand side, there's a tab there that says sermons and classes. And so if you missed a week, you can always go back and you can check it out. Um, and if you're uh, not a member, you can find lots of other great information there. Uh, that's the website of the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ. Uh, lots of helpful information, uh, sermons. Uh, Bible studies, uh, lots of information there about our group and ways that you can uh, find out more about how to serve God. Uh, we've been studying, as I mentioned, for the past couple of weeks in this book of Jeremiah. And to kind of set the scene for tonight, we've talked about the kings that Jeremiah has prophesied under. Most likely, the first 20 chapters occurred uh, during the reign of Josiah. Now, Josiah, uh, as we read in the Kings and the Chronicles, carried out a lot of reforms. He was doing a lot of good work trying to turn the hearts of the people. And he did. He did lots of good things. He was a great example. Um, however, what we read in Jeremiah is that despite these good reforms, we mentioned these last week, despite tearing down the high places, uh, despite cleaning out the temple, despite finding the book of the law, the people themselves had not turned fully. When we come to Jeremiah chapter 3, Mention this verse before, Jeremiah chapter 3 and in verse 10. It says, And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. In some ways, that's kind of been a theme verse for me as I go throughout these chapters. Judah has only turned to God in pretense. Uh, two weeks ago, the last time that I taught the class, we talked a lot about the hypocrisy. Uh, Jeremiah was preaching from the temple, people that were coming to the temple to worship, but yet were worshiping idols throughout the week. And that's the kind of people that Jeremiah is dealing with. And last week in Matt's class, uh, I, I thought that the end of chapter 13, uh, just a, a, a somber, cutting question that the chapter ends with, and I think it really sets up what we're going to talk about tonight. So chapter 13 that very last verse, verse 27, says, I've seen your adulteries and your lustful names, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem, will you still not be made clean? Some versions say, how long will you be unclean? Uh, you can just imagine God looking down on his people and saying, how long, how long will you be unclean? Um, and, and we know that judgment is going to come. Uh, in fact, after that reign of Josiah, it's just going to be 22 more years until the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, one of the verses that we're going to look at tonight in chapter 16, chapter 16 and verse 9, it says that before your eyes and in your time, judgment is going to come. So Jeremiah the prophet probably doesn't know exactly when. He's prophesying to the people, though, that Judgment is going to come, and Jeremiah does know it's going to come soon. It's going to come before my very eyes and in my time. That's the urgency that he's dealing with 
in speaking to this people that has not fully turned to the Lord with their whole heart. So we're going to uh, look at tonight chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. So if you would, go ahead and get your Bibles, and let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 14 and start studying. Uh, the setting here for chapter 14 is uh, this drought. There is a drought that comes upon the land that's mentioned to us in verse 1. We know that God uses all kinds of things to try to get his people's attention, and a drought or a famine is, is quite common. Uh, during periods of unfaithfulness, uh, this is one way, God using nature to get his people's attention. Um, and we see that there in these, these first couple of verses, that there's nothing available. Verse 3, the nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded. It mentions in verse 4 that the farmer was ashamed. Even nature itself, uh, in verse 5, it says the deer gave birth in the field and left because there was no grass. Uh, a sad, sad situation, but there is... There, there, there's no water. There's no sustenance. God is crying out to his people. Again, going back to the end of chapter 13, how long will you be unclean? How long will you continue in this way? I'm trying to get your attention and cause you to think about your condition and come back to me. Um, Jeremiah, in the next couple of verses, verses 7 through 9, he acknowledges the reason why. He acknowledges the fault of the people. Um, verse 7, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us. Later in the verse, we have sinned against you. Um, he is appealing here, though, despite those sins. He recognizes their shortcomings. He recognizes their faults, but he's asking for mercy. One thing that we're going to see that's uh, maybe a, a little bit new to us in our study of Jeremiah tonight is we're going to see a lot of back and forth between the Lord and Jeremiah. Uh, this is a very personal look at Jeremiah. Some of the verses that we're going to see in the later chapters uh, really help us to understand, I think, a little bit more about what the prophet is feeling, some of the things that he's struggling with. We've already mentioned that he, he struggles with his desire for God's righteousness to be upheld. He wants sin to be punished. He's not happy with the people for their sin, and he wants he wants God to be upheld and to be vindicated, but at the same time, it, it, it hurts him. It pains him. Uh, if you remember a couple of chapters back, this was a few weeks ago, he said he wished that he could be a well so that he could cry for longer. That gives you a little bit of insight into the, the tender and compassionate heart that Jeremiah has. He, he wants sin to be punished, but he also hates and despairs at the thought of his brethren being the ones that are punished, even though they deserved it. And I think we can identify with that. Uh, that's, that's something that I think a lot of us struggle with. We all have loved ones, and we probably desire nothing more than for those loved ones to be saved. But yet at the same time, we know that sin has a consequence. And I think the lesson for all of us, and I think the lesson that we see here in Jeremiah, is that there's, there should be an urgency there should be an urgency in our efforts to spread the gospel. There should be an urgency in our efforts and our desire to talk to others about the Bible, about the gospel, about God's plan for salvation. Because we don't want anybody to be lost, and we know that God doesn't want anybody to be lost either. But here in these verses, coming back to our chapter in chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, 
He's, he's appealing to God. He acknowledges the sin and the iniquity, but he ends verse 9 by saying, we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Well, the next couple of verses are, are God's somber response. God's saying, I'm not the one that's leaving you. Verses 10 through verse 12. Uh, verse 10, he says, thus says the Lord to this people, they have loved to wander and they have not restrained their feet. He's saying, the people are the ones that wandered away from me. It reminded me of Isaiah chapter 59, where he said, it's not that my hand is shortened. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. It's the sin of the people. The sin has separated them from me. This is no fault or lack on God's part. This is a people that has sinned and withdrawn themselves and wandered away from God. Uh, and, and God says there that these people are so hypocritical that you don't even need to pray for them or mourn for them. Um, he says that in verse 11, don't pray for these people. Verse 12, when they fast, I'm not going to hear their cry. When they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. Similar to what they mentioned already in chapter 7. These people, they're, they're hypocritical. And so don't go after them and don't, don't mourn for them because he said that the things that they're offering me, it's not sincere. They don't have a desire to serve me. They are the ones that have chosen to walk away. And that's why their sin must be punished. Well, now, Jeremiah back again. Again, we just see this back and forth, this, this almost conversation between Jeremiah and the Lord. Jeremiah is the one that speaks, verses 13 through 18. And, and here, I almost see uh, just a, I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's a doubt, but Jeremiah comes before God in these verses, and he wants to know, what about these other prophets? Uh, Jeremiah, it, it's clear, as we're going to see a little bit later on, he felt alone. He's the only one that it seems to be, at least he feels like the only one, that is preaching this message of repentance. And so he comes to God in these verses, verses 13 um, down through about verse 18. He said, what about all these other prophets? Uh, verse 13, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine. I will give you assured peace in this place. I can almost imagine that maybe Jeremiah, uh, maybe some time has passed. Again, we don't know exactly what time this is. Uh, it, it may still be on the tail end of Josiah's reign, but perhaps Jeremiah's been prophesying for years with no success. And he sees all these other prophets around him that are prophesying peace. And judgment has not come yet. Maybe he's starting to doubt a little bit and he's asking God, what about all these other prophets? But God quickly sets the record straight. And he says in verse 14, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. And the sad thing is that what he goes on to say in verse 15 is that the same things they're prophesying won't happen will happen to them. The sword and the famine, those are going to happen. Uh, again, they, they should know just based on what's going on. Famine and drought is currently going on right now. So peace and prosperity clearly is not reigning throughout the land. Uh, but... But the, these, these false prophets are not going to let the truth get in the way of their lives. They're going to continue prophesying this peace to the people uh, all the way up until they are the ones that are going to be destroyed along with everybody else. Uh, in response to this, um, verse 19 down and following, again, this is Jeremiah coming back. And this time, similar request, pleading for mercy. But he, he takes a little bit of a different tact. Uh, in these verses, I think it's interesting, 
he appeals not to just asking for blanket grace or blanket mercy, but he appeals specifically to God in saying, uphold the honor of your throne and the covenant that you have made. Verse 21, it says, do not abhor us for your name's sake. So this again is taking it off. Don't just be merciful to us. He's acknowledging the sin of the people. Don't just be merciful to us, but be merciful to us for your name's sake, God. Uh, you can imagine maybe something like a conversation that God and Moses had when God was going to uh, destroy the people in the wilderness. And Moses said, no, Lord, no, Lord, for your name's sake. You don't want the other nations to speak ill of you, to say that you brought these people out of Egyptian captivity just to destroy them in the wilderness. I can almost see Jeremiah making the same argument here. Lord, uphold your name. Don't destroy your people. And he says there in the latter part of verse 21, remember, do not break your covenant with us. The children of Israel, they, they were the special people of God going all the way back to Exodus. God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. He made promises to them. Uh, he also made promises to the family of David. Um, you, you see what's going on, especially after Josiah, when the kings are taken off of the throne, especially when Jehoiachin is taken away into captivity. Many of the people felt like they had no king on the throne. They had no heir of David on the throne. And they were promised that they were going to have an heir of David on the throne. And so Jeremiah here is appealing to God, uphold your covenant. Now, this is very similar to some of the verses that we see in the 106th Psalm, Psalm 106. I'd encourage you to go read that uh, there in the, the 40s, I believe verse, uh, verse 44 and following. Yes, Psalm 106, verse 44 through verse uh, 47. Very similar language there, appealing to God to uphold his covenant. But again, remember, those promises were conditional. God was going to bless the people as they obeyed him, as, as they were his people. If they served him as their God, he would be their God and they would be his people. But it was a two-way relationship. And so Jeremiah here does appeal to God to keep his covenant and to remember that covenant. But we're going to see the response of the Lord in chapter 15. And he says, basically, I'm not going to relent. Um, those first couple of verses, I, I kind of grouped chapter 15, verses 1 through 9 together. Uh, he says in response to Jeremiah 15, verse 1, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Uh, pretty, pretty strong language. Um, verse 3 uh, really paints uh, a, a, pretty, a pretty gruesome picture, really, of what is going to await the people. This is what awaits them. This is a far cry from the mercy that Jeremiah is requesting. Verse 3 of chapter 15, I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble to all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. So again, this Manasseh, this would have been King Josiah's grandfather. And we uh, talked about this in the introduction, that Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings o over a long period of time, it was 50 years. Uh, he really led the people deep, deep into 
idolatry, built up all the high places, and again, one of the most abominable things, but he built those places where they would actually offer their children in sacrifice, offer their children in the fire to Molech. And this was just completely abominable before the Lord. And despite the fact that Manasseh repented at the very end of his life, we see that the damage has already been done. In some ways, he, he started something that continues even to this day. Uh, his son Ammon only reigned for a short period of time. And then Josiah taking the throne, despite all the reforms, despite all of the undoing that Josiah did, undoing meant most, most of which you know, his grandfather would have put up. In some ways, it was too late. The people had already turned to this, this way of life. They'd already taken this idolatry to heart. And so God is saying that there's going to be four things that await you, and they're all terrible. They're all destruction. It's just a, it's a gruesome picture, and it's far from uh, the mercy that Jeremiah is requesting. And again, this is, this is not because God is just some, uh, some, some evil person that, that wants to dole out this punishment, but he reminds them in verse 6, the reason is because you have forsaken me. You have gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary of relenting. Uh, in some ways, when you think about all the things that, that Judah did, it's remarkable that they got this much time. Again, if we are still in the reign of Josiah, we still have 22 more years. Um, now, it's easy to sit on the sidelines and to look at this uh, people that are given to idolatry and given to wickedness and say, wow, man, God was, God was really patient. He gave them 22 years. But personalize it a little bit. Uh, aren't we glad that, that God is patient with us? Um, God may very well, and I know probably in my own life, God has, God has probably said those same things about me. Brian, how long will you be unclean? And I would want that same mercy. I would want 22 years and then some to correct my ways and to repent. And so it, it is remarkable to sit and look at the people as wicked as they are and think, wow, you know, God gave them at least 22 years, 40 years, however long to correct their ways. But yet we desire that same patience and that same mercy. Um, but it is, it is fairly remarkable when you think that he is preaching a message that th these destructions and these judgments are not going to be realized for a, a period of time. This information. Again, you've seen this back and forth between Jeremiah and between God. Jeremiah asks for mercy. God says, I'm not going to relent. Jeremiah says, well, I appeal to your throne. Uphold your throne. Uphold your covenant. God is still not going to relent. What we see in verses 10 and, and following is just this, you know, almost, almost dejection from Jeremiah at this revelation. Uh, he says there in verse 10, woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I've neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. So you almost see that there, there's two things that are going on here. Obviously, Jeremiah is, uh, Jeremiah is saddened, of course, by the destruction of the judgment that's going to come on the people. Um, but he's also saddened at the treatment that he's getting. Uh, it mentions here he's being treated like somebody uh, there in verse 10, who has been lending out at interest, lending out like a, like a cursed individual, someone who's been taking advantage of his brother. He's the one that's going around and he's trying to uh, help. He's trying to 
uh, encourage and teach and bring the people to repentance, and they're the ones that are cursing him. He is being mistreated for his message. Um, what he what he is trying to bring about here, verses verses ten and following, it seems like it's just weighing on him. It's the impending judgment of the nation, but it's also the mistreatment. Uh, verse fifteen. That's the one he goes on to really kind of elaborate on this. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake, I have suffered rebuke. Verse 16, your words were found and I ate them. Your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. But then in verse 18, why is my pain perpetual? My wound incurable, which refuses to be healed. Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? So again, he has these two things going on. He is despairing for the judgment and the pain and the suffering and the death that's going to come upon his people, but he's also struggling and dealing with this persecution upon, upon himself personally. Again, go back to uh, chapter 14. It seems like he is one of a very few number of people that are actually preaching the truth to the people. There's all these other prophets that are out there, and they're saying, hey, everything's going to be all right. Don't worry. This drought's going to pass. You don't need to worry about what Jeremiah is saying. We're going to be taken care of. We're going to be protected. We're God's special people. Jeremiah is being persecuted, and now his message shifts, and instead of mercy for the people, now he's asking for mercy for himself. Um, what we see at the very end there, verse 18, this perpetual pain I think, again, I mentioned this a little bit ago, but it also kind of speaks to me that he's got some, he's got some doubts. Uh, this last part of verse 18, when he's speaking to God, he says, Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream, as waters that fail? Uh, the image, at least, that I got is going to a stream, going to a well, going to some kind of water source, and not finding water. Uh, in the midst of a drought, when you're in severe thirst, when your throat's dry, all you want to do is to be nourished and to be refreshed. And you go to some place hoping for refreshment, and it fails you. There's no water in the stream. There's no water in the well. There's nothing to drink. A pretty, pretty strong accusation to bring against God here. And I think that it shows just how much Jeremiah is struggling, that he would say something like this to God that he would come to God and he would ask God, are you an unreliable stream? You know, we're, we're talking about God. We're talking about the Lord Almighty. We're talking about the creator, the provider, and the sustainer of all things. If anything, God is not an unreliable stream. And I think this goes to show just some of the pressure that Jeremiah was under, some of the things that he was struggling with, that he would, he would levy this kind of an accusation against God. Again, we have God's response, verses 19 through 21. We'll start with verse 19, because I think you can take it in two different ways. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vile, you shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. I think there's two ways that you can, you can interpret this verse. Uh, that word return is a little bit tough. Uh, it's a very generic word. It can mean a lot of different things. If you go back and look at some of the other ways that it's used, it can literally just mean to turn around. It can mean to go back where you were. Uh, but it can also uh, carry the connotation of repentance. 
So I think there's two things that you can maybe interpret from this. The first one is God here seeing Jeremiah, seeing what he's struggling with amid these persecutions of the people, and he's offering him reassurance. He's saying, listen, if you go back to work, return back, then I'm going to be with you. If you return, I will bring you back. You're not going to go into the battle. You're not going to go into the fray and be lost and be destroyed. I'm going to bring you back safely. That's one way of taking it. The other way is saying, Jeremiah, if you repent, uh, and this is, this is maybe the one that I lean a little more towards, uh, just given the severity of what Jeremiah has just said to God. He just came to God and said, are you an unreliable stream? Are you water that I can't count on? And God's saying, Jeremiah, you need to change your attitude. You need to recognize who you're dealing with. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Job and some of the ways that Job interacted with God. Uh, Job, again, another individual under lots of stress, under lots of uh, persecution from the people that were closest to him, saying, saying some things that God came and rebuked him for. I almost see a similar situation here where the Lord is saying, if you repent of this, I will bring you back and you will be my mouthpiece again. You will be my prophet and you will have this responsibility to discern the holy from the unholy. That's what I take from that idea of the, the precious from the vile. You will be the one that's distinguishing between the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean. That is your responsibility. Unlike those false prophets, unlike the priests that weren't doing their job, unlike the royals that weren't doing their job, you are to be the one that's out there telling the people to cast aside the unclean things like idolatry and cling to the clean things. But you cannot have this attitude of, of distrust in me. One of the things that maybe leans me a little bit more towards that is this last part, let them return to you, but you must not return to them. I think you're talking about the people. It's that same word, that same word return. Um, and so I almost see here him saying, listen, the people, they're the ones that need to repent. You have not been in the wrong. The message that you have been sending to the people, that's the right message. You need to keep preaching that. Keep preaching that with the goal that they will repent, not that you will change and you will bow to their persecutions. Um, that's, that's, that's kind of, like I said, there's two ways of taking that, um, two ways of interpreting that. I tend to lean maybe a little bit more towards God uh, rebuking Jeremiah a little bit here. Um, but nevertheless, the outcome, as we see in verses 20 and verse 21, is going to be the same. If he goes back to being that prophet, that mouthpiece for the Lord, if he stays the course, God is going to be with him. This is something he promised him all the way back in the very beginning. In the very beginning, remember, he said, I'm going to make you a fortified wall. We see some of that same imagery here. Verse 20, I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail. I am with you to save you and deliver you. Verse 21, I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked. I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. Again, this is God. This is the fountain of living water. He is not unreliable. He is not an unreliable stream. He is the one that gives life. He is the one that gives sustenance. And he is the one that is capable of protecting Jeremiah. And that's the message that he leaves him with here at the end of chapter 15. Well, as we move on into chapter 16, we're going to see an even more personal look at Jeremiah's life. This has been a, a series of very personal chapters. Um, Matt dealt last week with this very physical representation, the sash, uh, the linen sash, 
that Jeremiah had to do a lot of work. I appreciate Matt's, uh, Matt's uh, teaching there. I don't think I ever put together the fact that he had to travel all this way to go hide the sash and come back and then go get it again. Um, and again, God is calling on Jeremiah in chapter 16 to take on another big task. And this big task is actually not doing something. As we come to chapter 16, he is called to give the people a very visual representation of the Lord's judgment. And that visual representation is that Jeremiah is not to marry and to have children. Um, again, Matt did a great job last week of mentioning that this is fairly common with the prophets. Um, I think he mentioned uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel, some of the things that they did. My mind immediately went to Hosea, uh, marrying Gomer, taking a wife of harlotry. This is almost the, the opposite of Hosea. Instead of taking a wife of harlotry, Jeremiah is instructed, you will not take a wife. Um, uh, again, this, is, this, would be, this would be a tough pill to swallow. Someone who is already feeling alone, someone who we can clearly tell from the previous chapters is, is struggling with the, the emotions that he has, he's not going to have that support system. He's not going to have that spouse, that partner that he can come back to, that he can rely on. Uh, he's not going to get to experience the joy of, of raising a family, of, of having children. But God has a purpose for that. And the purpose is to show the people that having a spouse, having family, the way that the judgment is going to unfold upon them, those are just individuals that are going to die by the sword. And it, it is a, just a, a bleak, bleak picture that is presented. Uh, verse 3 of 16. Thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, concerning their mothers who bore them and the fathers who begot them, they shall die gruesome deaths. It doesn't get any more plain than that. Jeremiah is using his life to teach the people. He goes on a little bit further in the next couple of verses. Jeremiah is instructed not to go into the house of mourning to lament or bemoan them. He's also instructed on the other side. Verse 7 uh, and verse 8 there. Uh, verse 8, I think it mentions, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and drink. Jeremiah is radically changing his lifestyle, not mourning, not feasting, not marrying, not having a family. But the whole purpose was so that in verse 10, the people will be provoked to ask questions. Verse 10, it shall be when you show the people all these words, they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? What is our iniquity? What is our sin? Then you shall say to them, that's the whole goal behind this. Get them to ask. Get them to realize that what they're doing isn't okay. They need to change their lives. Verse 11, then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, they have walked after other gods, served them, worshiped them, forsaken me, and not kept the law, and you have done worse than your fathers. That's the whole goal of this, is to get them to realize you've got to change. Your fathers were wicked, and you are more wicked. That's why he's calling on Jeremiah to make these drastic changes in his life. The, the last couple of verses, verses 14 through 21 of this chapter, actually do kind of shift forward to a future date with a little bit more of a hopeful picture. Uh, again, the bar has been set pretty low. We're talking about mothers and children dying gruesome deaths. So the bar has been set low for good news, but now we're looking forward. Um, we talked before about this. This is, uh, I think the, the technical word is alternation, where you're looking to a date. You're talking about something present time, and now you're looking forward to a future time. But we're looking to a future time. It says there in uh, verse 15, 
We're talking about a time when the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, Babylon, and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. This is talking about a time when they're actually going to be coming back from captivity. So we're going way forward. We're going past the judgment. We're going past the captivity now to a time when they're back in the land. And God says, uh, you know, judgment's still going to come. So don't think that I've gotten off of that. Verses 17, 18. Verse 18, first, I'll repay double for their iniquity and their sin because they have defiled my land. Iniquity's still coming. You're not going to get out on that. But there is going to come a time when, when peace will reign again. And it's not just this physical peace. It's not just that you're not going to be under attack. It's, it's not just that you're not going to have to pay anybody tribute. We're talking about a time when there is peace between God and his people, when that right relationship has been restored. Verse 19, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthless and unprofitable things. Verse 21, therefore behold, I will this one cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. All the things that God is doing, he is doing to show his creation, all of his creation, that he wants to be in a right relationship with them. And he's looking forward to this day when even the Gentiles are going to cast off their idols as worthless things and come to worship God. And this is previewing what we're going to see in chapter 17. Chapter 17 is going to deal with idols and the one true God. But it's looking forward to that, that glorious day. And again, we know that prophecy is fulfilled by Christ's coming. Christ coming and dying on the cross so that all nations could be brought to peace. And not a physical peace where nobody fights each other. We're not completely dealing doing away with sword and famine. We're talking about a reconciliation between God and man. Where idols are put away, the worship of other gods is put away, unfaithfulness is put away. All men from every nation worshiping the one true God in a right relationship with him. That's what the prophet is looking forward to. And what a wonderful, glorious picture it is, especially given the current circumstances that he's in. But let's continue on in that thought. Let's finish off our study tonight in chapter 17, because it really does deal with uh, idolatry and the true God. This is very similar uh, to what I dealt with two weeks ago in chapter 10. Uh, a similar message, comparing and contrasting idols versus the true God. The beginning of chapter 17 really just shows to me how the sin of idolatry just creeps into every aspect of your life. Uh, the wording there in the New King James Version, chapter 17, verse 1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altar. You think about, is there anything, anything more permanent? You know, we're not talking about a piece of paper and a pencil here. We're talking about an iron pen with a point of diamond, something, something hard, something that is going to be able to engrave and cut away and permanently etch itself on the tablet of your heart. I think those words are especially powerful because what is supposed to be written on our hearts? What are we going to see later on in Jeremiah chapter 31? God talks about establishing a new covenant. He's going to talk about, I'm going to establish a new covenant and I'm going to write my laws on your heart. And instead, instead of a people that have written God's laws on their heart, meaning that they live by them, they take them to heart, they live their lives by them, 
they have been in the situation where idolatry, idolatry is etched with an iron diamond tipped pen on the tablet of their heart. How do you get that off? You can't get that off. There's no erasing that. There's no smoothing that over. The only way to do it is to completely break the tablet. And what's sad is that it not only is inscribed upon their hearts, but maybe even sadder. In verse 2, their children remember their altars and their wooden images. It is passed on to the next generation. That's what we mentioned in the previous chapter. Your fathers were wicked and you more so. It just continues one generation to the next. It gets worse and it gets worse. This idolatry kindles the wrath of God. Verse 4, the latter part there, you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. Uh, idolatry, this, just this, this idea here that you have just, you have taken something that should have been so precious and, and you've squandered it. In effect, you've traded it for something that is worthless. When you think about the beauty of a right relationship with God, and you've traded it for a relationship with, the, with an idol. That's really what I see presented in these next section of verses. Um, verse 6, look at that one. He shall be like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see when good comes, but he shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land that's uninhabited. What a, what a terrible picture. Can you imagine being a shrub in the desert? Well, now compare that to the man who trusts in the Lord, verse 7 and 8. He shall be like a tree planted by the water, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when the heat comes. So you've taken something that could have been so wonderful. You could have been in a paradise. You could have been a tree with deep roots planted by the water, able to withstand anything, but you chose to be a shrub in the desert. Uh, even go on, verse 11. Verse 11 is a, kind of a strange verse, but it presents a really vivid picture of this bird that sits on eggs that aren't its own. Well, it's pointless. You know, they're, 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 not, they're not your eggs. That The eggs can't hatch. And so you have almost this idea of futility of this bird that is working and working and working for something that's not even theirs, something that's not going to hatch. Um, it goes on there. Uh, uh, it also compares an individual. So is he who gets riches, but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and at the end he'll be a fool. All of these verses, to me, just seem to speak to this idea that the people have been given something precious. That covenant that Jeremiah had asked God to remember was a tremendous blessing. They were the covenant people of God, and they had thrown that away to worship idols. And I think that should be a lesson for, for us as well, that we have been given something incredibly precious. We have been given the salvation of our sins, and the opportunity to be in a right relationship with God through the sacrifice of his son. But yet we see people all the time that throw it away. And they throw it away for things that, in comparison, are just as silly as a wooden idol. They throw it away for money. Uh, they, they throw it away for another person. They throw it away for a job. They throw it away for, uh, you know, uh, a relationship, There's all kinds of things that we see that people leave their faith for. And it's just as silly as, and just as worthless as these things that are mentioned here. And this is his call to them, is to, to realize what they have and realize what they can come back to. They can come back to what's presented in verse 13, the Lord, the hope of Israel. 
And it mentions there again, the fountain of living waters. Go back to what we talked about earlier, Jeremiah wondering, are you going to be that stream that I can rely on? God is the fountain of living water that we can all rely on. And that's the one that we need to place our hope and our trust in, not, not some kind of, of idol. Well, the chapter, chapter continues on here, uh, verses 14 through 18. And this is really a prayer of vindication from Jeremiah. Um, and this does not, uh, this does not uh, have that same kind of doubting tone that we saw a couple of chapters earlier. But again, it seems like Jeremiah is still undergoing some of the same persecution. And he's asking God, um, verse 18, let them be ashamed who persecute me. Do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed. But do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. Asking for vindication uh, for those that are persecuting him and trying to tear him down. The last section here, really quickly, before we wrap up, verses 19 through 27, is really interesting. Jeremiah is instructed here to go to the gate, and he's going to speak to the princes. He's going to speak to the royalty. He's going to speak to individuals that are coming in and out of the gates. We're going to be talking to princes, also be talking to individuals that would have been engaged in commerce. And we have a very simple instruction from the Lord. He's calling them to observe the Sabbath. And at first glance, you may think, well, okay, that's just one of a list of many things that they need to be doing. Why is God asking him here specifically to observe the Sabbath? Just think a little bit about that. What was the initial purpose of the Sabbath? This idea that they would work and work and work and work and work, and then on the seventh day, they would do nothing. One thing that I might suggest is that observing the Sabbath shows trust. Because remember, they weren't going to go out, even when they were in the wilderness. They were collecting the manna, they were collecting the quail, but they were not to collect on the seventh day. God said, I will provide enough for you to get you through a day without collecting. They were supposed to rely and trust in the Lord that he would provide. And you get the picture here that the, this people that Jeremiah is dealing with, they've gone so far away from that. Uh, they don't have a right relationship with God. They're not relying on God anymore. I think it's intentional that Jeremiah is prophesying here at this gate, probably lots of individuals, maybe even on the Sabbath, that are engaging in commerce, that are engaging in trade, that are engaging in work, trying to pursue money. And he's saying, you have to set those, side, those things aside, those earthly physical things, and go back to a trust in God. And observing the Sabbath is one way to show that you are placing your trust in God. The second thing I might suggest is that it's taking a break from everything else to focus in on God. When you realize who's providing for you, when you realize who you're trusting in, you're taking an entire day off to focus just on the Lord. And so I think that, that might be some things that we can consider as to why he's asking him to go and to tell the people to remember the Sabbath, to keep the Sabbath holy. But he promises blessings for them. Verse 25 uh, he says if, in verse 24, he said, if you heed me carefully, in verse 25, then shall enter the gates of the city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, remembering that covenant. But there's going to be curses if they don't. Verse 27, if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath, I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palace of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. So a somber warning and admonition to the people, but again, it's all going back to that similar message, calling on them to cast aside the idols, cast aside the physical things, and fully turn, fully repent with their whole hearts to
to come back into a right relationship and trust God. Hope you've enjoyed the study. Uh, again, if you have any questions for Matt and I, we'd love to hear from them. Please uh, call us, send us a text, send us an email. We'd be happy to address any of your questions in the next video. But thank you for your time and thank you for studying with us.